You may have noticed, if you're a regular uh, part of our church family, that things are a little bit weird today. Uh, A few songs shorter than normal, and I'm bouncing around doing some random stuff, and a microphone cord's trying to attack me. Hold on. Um, We are continuing to move through our sermon series called Like Jesus, in which we are actually uh, following stories of the disciples, we're not actually, we spent six months from Advent through Easter following the stories of Jesus, and then the first sermon series we do in six months that doesn't look at the life of Jesus, I've called like Jesus, um, because we're looking at how the early church kind of took root and began to live um, as the church now that Jesus is resurrected. Um, But as we get into that and talk about today's uh, topic of being redemptive like Jesus, uh, do you guys remember a few years ago there was kind of this trendy, uh, I don't know if it's still a thing now or not, but it was huge a few years ago, Um, the whole spark joy thing, um, I think her name was Marie Kondo, Kondo, yes. Do do you guys know what I'm talking about? A few of you do. So uh, a few years ago, this was kind of a huge cultural phenomenon. There was this, uh, this idea that you should live more minimalist, right? You have too much stuff and it's cluttering up your life and you need to get rid of things that you don't need. And so this this lady's approach was you would go pick up an object and hold it. And her term was spark joy. If that item sparked joy, keep it. If it didn't, you'd get rid of it. And I'm an idealist at heart. Like, I love the concept behind it. Like, why would you collect a bunch of stuff that doesn't, bring joy into your life that doesn't add to your life. The problem is I've never picked up like a plunger that sparked joy, but you still need one. You know what I mean? It's like it breaks down at some point. You know, there's certain things that don't spark joy, but you just have to have. Um, But it was this idea, it was an approach to help you declutter your life and to fill your life with good things, to hold on to the good things and let go of the things that maybe would clutter up but aren't necessary or aren't good. And I think there's something helpful uh, about that approach, right? Like, hold on to the good things, let go of the the bad things. Um, there's also contrasting to, to that spark joy movement thing, uh, a focus on an awareness, cultural awareness, on a phenomenon called hoarding. Um, so I kind of put these things in my mind as opposite ends of the spectrum. You've got, you know, spark joy over here that, like, you hold the item, and if, it's, if it makes you feel good, you hold on to it. And then, then you, on the other end of the spectrum, you have this idea of hoarding, where you just hold on to it because you don't know if you're going to need it. Like, we just got to collect everything. We got to hold on to it. There will come a day where I'm going to use that thing. And there's, I think there's some element of both of that in, in all of our lives. Um, some of us may lean more towards one or the other. Um, if you've been married for any length of time, you probably know where your spouse leans on that spectrum and have probably had that conversation a few times, right? Um, but the idea behind hoarding is like you just hold on to everything because everything has use at some point, you think, and it brings comfort knowing that I'm going to have what I need in the moment that I need it. And when, when hoarding goes terribly wrong, people end up cluttering up their lives to a point that they're not able to, to function, like it takes over. Their spaces are so overwhelmed that they have a hard time functioning. And so there's this, this spectrum of only hold on to the things that are the best and the great and also hold on to everything because you never know what you're going to need. And so <clears throat> in our scripture story today, we're going to look at uh, just the story of somebody uh, holding on to something or letting go of something. Right? So all throughout scripture, there's this theme uh, about not grasping, about not holding on to, not clinging tight to something, but rather uh, receiving something or, in order to give it away. Right, so even if it is the best thing, even if it is the greatest blessing you've ever received, the call on the life of a Christian is to give that blessing away. Right, so it's not a question of, does it make me happy or not? Is it hoarding or is it sparking joy? But the Christian perspective, the biblical perspective is, how can I give this away? And that's what we're going to look at, that, that as Christians, as the church, as Jesus followers, we are blessed in order to bless others. 
the Holy Spirit would come upon somebody. Like if you read the stories in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon somebody in order for them to fulfill some mission, in order for them to, to go serve somebody else, in order for God's purposes to be fulfilled. They didn't just receive it and it made them feel good. They received it in order to be empowered to live out what God is calling them to live out. Uh, manna in the wilderness. You know the Old Testament story when the, the, uh, the Hebrew people had escaped from Pharaoh's control and they're out in the wilderness and every morning they would wake up and God would have provided manna, like a bread type thing on the grass. Enough for all of them to eat. But they were told they couldn't keep it. You couldn't, there was no Tupperware, you couldn't hang on to it for another day. It would go bad. If you tried to stock up manna for tomorrow, when tomorrow came, it was no good. You had to wake up every day trusting that there would be a new blessing of manna. Um, the only exception was on Sabbath, like the day before Sabbath, you would get two days worth because you didn't have to go collect. Anyways, um, but the idea was that you couldn't stockpile it. Uh, every day you had to wake up and start over again. Or maybe um, the story in Philippians 2 where they talk about Jesus who is God and in every way was God and, and the God had poured into him his very nature. In every way, Jesus was God, but Jesus did not cling to that identity. He didn't cling to that status. Rather, he poured himself out. He emptied himself out, um, not because he thought he was a bad person or he didn't want God's spirit filling him up, but he poured himself out so that others could be redeemed, right? God filled him with God's very own nature and Jesus poured himself out to redeem and to reconcile the world, to bring people into a holy relationship with God. So he was filled to be emptied to bring reconciliation and salvation. And so today we're going to look at a different story, um, a unique story that you may not be familiar with, or if you've heard this story from the scriptures before, you, we might have focused on something different at the time. We're going to look at a story from the book of Acts, it's chapter 16, verse 9 through 15. Uh, it'll be on the screens, or if you want to have a Bible in your hands and didn't bring one, there should be some stashed under the chairs throughout. And if you don't have a Bible and you need one, take that orange and blue and red Bible that's under the pew and take it home with you today. If you don't have a Bible and need one, that is yours. Um, but we're going to go into Acts chapter 16, verse 9 through 15. It says this, During the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace. I didn't say that right, but whatever. The following day to Naples. And from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river where we, were supposed, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke with a woman who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. Um, pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, wondrous spirit, gather our minds today that they may be one with you. Open our ears that we may hear your word. Soften our hearts that we may receive your wisdom. Speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. So before we dig into this week's scripture story and jump into kind of what all this means for us today, um, I want to rewind to a story from uh, the sermon a couple weeks ago. Um, it's the story of Ananias receiving a vision from Jesus. And going to a man named Saul. This was a couple weeks ago we preached this, this sermon in the scripture text. Saul was, if you remember, a persecutor of Christians. 
um, he had an encounter with Jesus and was blinded in, through this encounter. Ananias had this vision to go to Saul. So there was this Jesus follower, Ananias, who had this vision to say that, that Jesus said, go to this man who's waiting for you. He's been prepared for you to go. And Ananias restores Paul's, Saul's sight. Um, Saul immediately begins to proclaim that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and Saul becomes a Jesus follower. So why am I bringing this up today? What does this story have to do with our scripture for today? Well, Saul becomes Paul in the story. The one who had an encounter with Jesus and was blinded. The one who received a visitor. The one that Jesus sent somebody to go bring healing to is Paul in our story. Today's scripture is about someone who experienced salvation and redemption when a Jesus follower was sent by God to go visit an unbeliever. And that's the the same template. That's the same thing that happened to Saul when he became Paul. So keep that in the back of your mind as we're talking about this story from today. That this Paul in our scripture story is a Christian, is who he is because somebody once received a vision and they said, yes, I'm going to go. So now we have that in our back of our mind. We're ready to look at the scripture and start trying to figure out what this means for us today. Um, Right prior to the story starting, right before this story um, kicks off in Acts 16, Paul and his fellow missionaries, the Bible tells us, were prevented from going to Asia. They they thought they had a path laid out. They think they knew where they were going. And it says they were prevented by God from going into Asia. Um, But it They weren't given a new direction. It was just, don't go that way. And so you have this group of people that were committed to following Jesus. They were ready to go wherever God sent them. And they were like, we're going to go to Asia. And God says, no, you're not. And so they stopped. They would be without direction, it would seem. Without a place to go. So they went to Troas, which is where Paul had this vision of a man calling out for help, right? So they, went, they just went to a city because they didn't know where else to go. And while they were there, Paul had this vision of a man from Macedonia crying out, come help us. And Paul had this vision and he believed that this man from Macedonia indicated God was calling the disciples to go. This is where their missionary journey should go, to Macedonia, which is basically modern-day Greece. Like if you had a map, you'd overlay it. It's basically Greece. The thing is, Macedonia wasn't a city. It wasn't like a specific location on a map you could go to. Think if somebody said, hey, I need to meet you. Why don't you meet me in New England? Right? Like you're going to need to be a little bit more specific than that, right? Like it gives you a general direction, but the likelihood of you just randomly running into that person uh, in a space that size is pretty limited. So they had a direction, but they didn't have a specific location. So they went to Macedonia, and they went to Philippi. Uh, It's a large city. It was a Roman colony. Um, They went for a few days, it says. Now, Paul had a practice. Anytime he would go to a new city, whenever he'd go for a missionary journey, he would go the first three Sabbaths that he was in town, he would go to the synagogue and preach about the Messiah. This was his rhythm, this was his routine, this was his practice. He would go and preach to the Jewish community about the Messiah Jesus in the synagogues, right? But here in Acts 16, they go to Philippi and they just kind of hang out for a few days. Uh, I'm not sure if there wasn't a synagogue or maybe they didn't know where the synagogue was or how to get to it, but they didn't didn't go there. They just kind of hung out for a few days. And then when the Sabbath came along... Instead of going to a synagogue, they went to a place where they thought some people prayed. Right? They didn't have a real direct... If you're following along with the story, you realize that this was kind of winging it. <laughs> you know, they're calling an audible, they're making it up as they go. We thought we were going to Asia, we're not, and it doesn't say why, but God prevented us from going. So we go, we're in Troas, we have a vision of a guy who tells us to go to a place, but that place isn't very specific. When we get there, we don't know what to do, so we kind of end up in a place where we think somebody might be praying, because that's the best information we got. Um, Which, if I was following Paul at this point in time, I probably would have been critical of that plan. (laughs) You don't know what you're doing. 
Anyways, it kind of reminds me of Moses wandering in, in the wilderness a little bit here. Um, but on the Sabbath, they went to this place where they might find people praying. And while they were there, they talked to, a, to some women that were gathered there. Now, it doesn't say that it was only women that were gathered there, but it said they talked to the women that were gathered there. And in this group of women was a, a lady named Lydia. And she was part of a group um, of these women. And God had prepared her to hear this message that Paul was going to bring and so after receiving this message, right, so, so Paul and the group just randomly go to this place, it would seem, of prayer. They don't have a real direction. They don't have a synagogue. They don't have all that. And they go to this place of prayer, and they just randomly start talking to somebody. And this woman receives the message, hears the message about Jesus, and the scriptures tell us she became a follower of Jesus, and so did her entire household. Now, on its face, this is a story that we're kind of used to hearing, right? A message is proclaimed, people received it, they responded, and salvation came to them in their house this day, right? Um, What's interesting about this is this is the first record of any baptisms in Europe, right? So this is a significant deal in the history of the Christian church. This is a a new territory. This is uncharted territory, and and there wasn't a plan from Paul's perspective, And then the last verse we read about Paul and his company staying in Lydia's home. Most scholars believe that's a way of indicating that the church in Philippi that would grow in the subsequent years um, would meet in Lydia's house. And there's a good possibility, many of the, the scholars that I referred to in preparing this message believe that she may have been the leader of the church in Philippi. So in your Bible, there's a letter to the church in Philippi known as the book of uh, Philippians, right? That letter was written probably three, somewhere between three and ten years after this story happened to the church in Philippi, which was probably meeting in Lydia's home. So this, this group of people that had no idea where they were going, they thought they were going to Asia, they couldn't get to Asia, they went to to Macedonia on a, on, based off of a vision of a guy they didn't know, and they went to talk to some women they didn't know instead of going to the, the synagogue like they usually do. And in this conversation, they start the first church in Europe and encountered the leader of that church. Um, this is a strange story to tell. I mean, Paul had this vision of a man, and this man we never actually meet. <laughs> This man says, come help us in Macedonia. And there's no indication in the scriptures that they met this guy. Come to Macedonia, this man says, which isn't a specific destination. It's like a country or a region. And so then they go to a city that they pick and hang out for a few days where they hope to encounter people worshiping. And they run into a group of women. Again, not the man from the vision. They never meet him. One of the women responds to the message by getting baptized and probably becomes the leader of the first church in Europe. Like, what a crazy story. Um, and it's just tucked away here in our little, uh, little section of scripture here in the, the book of Acts. So, as a preacher, I ask, what does God want us to do with that today? Like, what are we supposed to do with that information? I think that God wants us to know today that each and every one of us wants the church to know today what Paul, who used to be called Saul, knew all those years ago. And we can put this on the screen. Yeah, this is what they knew, and I think this is what God wants for us to know today, that salvation isn't a box to be checked off or a status to be achieved, but salvation is a new life to be lived and shared with others. Right? It's not some something, oh, I did that, you're supposed to get saved, oh, I'm saved. Or, are you saved or are you lost? Pick a category, which one are you in? It's, it's, salvation is more than that. It's, it's a new life. You are being saved from an old life, being saved to a new life, and that new life is to be shared with others. The first thing I thought when I read the scripture for this week's message was to wonder why Paul would be willing to let this vision send him to a place that he really had no intention of going. Why would Paul let this vision uh, lead him and his group, apparently off track, to go into a place that he had no intention of going? 
then they just hang out for a few days like this wasn't his plan. Why, why did he let this vision disrupt everything that he had planned and everything he thought he knew about what he was supposed to be doing? Like, how could Paul allow that to happen? And the more I thought about this, the more I realized that Paul was probably willing to go on this adventure to throw off his own plans to listen to, to God through this vision. He'd be willing to do this because he himself had experienced salvation. He had been redeemed because a follower of Jesus had a vision. Remember, Ananias had this vision and was told to go, and he went, and Saul became Paul. Paul experienced salvation and redemption because a Jesus follower had a vision, heard a message from God, and said, go, and they went. And so who was Paul to say, well, I don't think I can do that? Saul became Paul because after encountering Jesus, God sent Ananias through a a vision. And despite Saul's background as a persecuted Christian, or as a persecutor of Christians, as one who brought harm and damage and death to Christians, despite that reputation, Ananias, this follower of Jesus, was faithful to that calling, and the Christian community invited them in. Ananias shows up, and the first thing he says to Saul is, Brother. You're part of this family. Despite Saul's background, the Christians invited him into their faith community. They shared their faith with Saul, and that's how Saul became Paul. So Paul understood that he had received a gift of salvation, that he had been redeemed and reconciled, not because of something that he had done, but because others had been faithful to what they had been called to do. He had received it as a gift in the same way that they had received it in a gift, and he could not hoard it. He could not hold it himself. In fact, Jesus was sent by the Father and said yes to, the, to that calling, right? There's moments in Scripture in the life of Jesus where he take this cup from me. Why does it have to be this way if there's another way, but yet not your will, or not my will, but your will, Right? Jesus was sent by the Father and said yes to that calling in order for redemption to happen. God equips and sends his people. God equips and sends his church. The gifts that God gives us cannot be hoarded, it cannot be stockpiled, and that includes our faith and that includes salvation. Our faith tradition teaches us that we can have a personal relationship with Jesus. Like That's part of what it means to be a Nazarene. Uh, It's part of what it means to be kind of a Protestant, that you can have this personal relationship with Jesus, uh, with God. You don't have to go through other people to get to God. You can have a personal relationship with Jesus. We can encounter Jesus in our lives. You can know him personally. But what can happen over time What can happen when culture is so individualistically focused is that we can have this personal relationship with Jesus, but it can move in our minds from being a personal relationship to a private relationship. Our faith can go from being about us as the family of God to, well, it's really about me and God. That's what's important. But Paul knew he was a Jesus follower. He was saved. He was, he was redeemed and reconciled because of somebody else's faithfulness. Because somebody else had been obedient when God said go. And so he knew better than to think it was just about me and God. He knew from day one that it was a gift. And so when God says go to Paul, he needed to go. Because his faith, his relationship with Jesus wasn't just about himself. Paul knew that there was people who needed the very gift of salvation that he had received himself. And that part of being faithful to God is sharing our faith with others. Part of being faithful to God is sharing that faith with others. So even though Paul wasn't given a specific city, even though Paul didn't know the name of the man in the vision, even though they didn't have anything to do when they got to the city except wait for Sabbath, even though they didn't know where a synagogue was or uh, even where prayer was going to happen, Paul let his faith lead him in such a way that God created opportunities for him to share his faith with others. And God prepared Lydia's heart to receive that message from Paul. And her, her whole household became Jesus' followers. So while God was speaking to Paul and Paul was wrestling with his obedience and am I willing to go? Am I going to hear this vision? Am I going to be faithful? God was working in Lydia's heart saying, somebody's going to come and bring you good news. 
God prepared Lydia's heart to receive that message. And so the strange story begins with a vision and ends with a church being started. God called and equipped others to share um, with Lydia and her family, and they said yes, and they became Jesus followers. But this isn't just a story about a church 2,000 years ago. This is our story at First Church. God has called and equipped others to share with us, each and every one of you. If you say you're a Jesus follower, somewhere you probably have in your story somebody sharing their faith with you. A parent, a grandparent, a friend, a Sunday school teacher, a youth group leader, somewhere along the line, somebody shared their faith with you. You didn't wake up one day and just create your faith. God called and equipped others to share that faith with you. Those people faithfully shared the story of Jesus with us and helped us find our place in the family of God. And then God calls, equips, and empowers us to share with others that faith we've received ourselves. So God is at work calling, equipping, and empowering us to share with others that same faith that was shared with us. And today... The day of our annual meeting, we do more than elect church officers, but gather to share reports from our ministries and our efforts to share that faith that we've received. This isn't just something that we're required to do because the manual of the Church of Nazarene says, well, you better read some reports. This is something that we do because God has called us and equipped us and given us a mission to fulfill. He's given us a vision of those saying, help, (laughs) And we are trying our best to say yes. And just like Paul, we don't have all the answers. Like he went, it was a region. Like our area is Battle Creek. We don't know everybody by name. We don't know everybody's needs, but we are doing our best to say yes. And so that's what these reports are today. We gather to share reports from our ministries on our efforts to share that faith we've received, acknowledge the challenges we've encountered along the way, and where we think God is leading us in the future. As a church, that is our mission. That is our calling. We've received a faith that's been passed down for 2,000 years, and it is our mission to share that faith with others. And today is a celebration of those efforts. And so um, to kind of kick off the reports element of this, uh, we're going to be telling some stories and sharing some things here in a moment. But um, the first thing I want to do is invite Cassie to come and meet me here in front of the uh, communion table. I know the word. Will you hold this for a second? Um, this is a, I'm, Cassie is holding a Distinguished Service Award. If you've been in the Nazarene Church for a while, you uh, may be familiar with what the Distinguished Na- uh, Service Award is. The leadership of the church, people of the church get together and say, we want to acknowledge and celebrate the faithful service of people in our congregation Um, that have said yes to Jesus in various ways, uh, whether through um, serving in various ministries, uh, supporting others in prayer, uh, supporting the church through faithful giving, um, whatever the element may be. But there's people in the church that we lift up, we shine a spotlight on and say, these are people that have said yes, that we're willing to follow the call of Jesus in their lives. And this morning, it is a a huge privilege to ask uh, Bruce and Sharon to come on up. Where are you guys at? I saw you guys in here. You can't hide. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you just thought your family was here just hanging out, like they had nothing. (laughs) No, Cassie's been having some conversations, and we're trying to make this happen without tipping you off. But yeah, shenanigans. Yeah. I mean, I have an in, so come stand here between us and face the congregation, if you would. I'll read this to them. All right. This says, uh, Battle Creek First Church of Nazarene takes pleasure in presenting this certificate to Bruce and Sharon Ryle, given in thankfulness to your years of dedication and service in the ministries of Battle Creek First Church of Nazarene. Thank you for your leadership, your giving, your service, your prayers, and your love. Don't go anywhere yet. Don't go anywhere. We're going we're gonna to pray for you guys. Um, we appreciate these 
these two so much. I'm just still getting to know you guys. Um, but many of you have long-standing relationships, especially the family. You guys have known these guys for a while. Um, but we're going to pray for them and uh, just thank God for their, their ministry uh, here at First Church. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Bruce and Sharon. Uh, their life in faith has been a witness uh, to us, an invitation to uh, see Jesus in and through them. Father, as a church, we celebrate them today their faithfulness, their commitment to the ministries of this church, to the family of this church. Um, We're so happy to be able to uh, award them the certificate, which doesn't communicate fully everything that they mean to us, but to acknowledge their distinguished service in the Church of the Nazarene, and specifically here in Battle Creek. Father, we pray that you would continue to call them, show them how to walk in faith, and allow them to uh, highlight Jesus wherever they go. We ask for physical strength and healing and comfort in all that they do, and that you would continue to use them as a blessing. Pour into them as many blessings as they can handle, so that they can, in turn, pour out those blessings on all that they encounter. We thank you for this great gift of uh, Bruce and Sharon. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you. As they find their way back to their seats, I'm going to ask uh, Paul, our board secretary, to come and kick off our uh, reports section. Um, while he's coming, just a reminder, that, that was distinguished service um, comes through the uh, missions element of the church, the NMI. Um, so uh, make sure you read the missions report in the little booklet if you didn't get one of those. Um, but that's, that's our report. We thought that was better than, than reading something, to, but to celebrate people that have said yes to the mission. And uh, so... I just wanted to highlight that. Paul, why don't you come and share your report this year? Yeah. Good morning. Can you hear me now? Uh, as I was saying, just multiple tasks of the same hat. Um, I'll get to the election results later. Some of you are just eagerly awaiting that, but we'll get to that later. This has been my privilege to complete my eighth year as your church board secretary. As we began the new church year, we continued to welcome back more members to in-person worship. We also welcomed a new member to the church board, Dave Scheidler, who joined the trustees and got right to work. Pastor Tanner presented the board with the one, two, three, four, five vision plan that helped us focus on fortifying existing ministries before jumping into new ministries and programs. He challenged us to consider any existing ministry and imagine what it would look like in five or ten years. What must we do to continue providing that ministry. We entered in the fall into the fall in planning back up, I'm going too fast. We entered the fall in full planning mode to celebrate the church's seventy fifth anniversary. A day of events helped us to bask in our heritage while also looking forward to an exciting future. Pastor rolled out the vision to the entire church as we envision what the next seventy five years might look like. God continues to bless our church community in ways we can't even imagine. The board continues to wrestle with policies related to COVID-19 for the church and the First Kids Learning Center. We have found that flexibility and discernment are necessary to navigate all the varied opinions and information that bombard us daily. We continue our efforts to provide an atmosphere that recognizes different comfort levels and respects each and every member of our community. Pastor Tanner continued to draw our focus away from events and programs toward discipleship and relationship building. Whenever possible, we considered how a planned event could draw others into a relationship with God. 
This also helps us look to the needs of the Battle Creek area and not just our own needs and desires. We head into the new year tasked with creating a vision for our ministries that draws others in. We will need to go where they are to accomplish this. As my eighth year as the board secretary comes to a close, I am excited and amazed when I think about what God has done and continues to do through our church, his church. Pray, dream, act, and love. Then watch as God enriches our efforts to accomplish his will beyond what we could imagine. Respectfully submitted, Paul Baker, board secretary. Perfect. Thank you, sir. Uh, it's, as we continue with some of the reports, it's my privilege to be able to highlight and celebrate the work of His Hand Compassionate Ministry, or as we call it here, the pantry. Um, it has a big formal name, but um, Jesus once said, When I was hungry, you gave me food. Uh, however, you treat those who have needs is how you have treated me. And His Hand. Compassionate Ministries, um, Peggy as our director and the volunteers there, remember that ministry means service. Like sometimes ministry, ministers, we, we loft up, we give it a lofty title, we think it's a place over and above, but at the root of the word it means to serve others. And his hand embodies that more um, each and every day. The goal of his hand is to meet the needs of our community, not asking what they can get from others. There's no expectation. There's no demand. It's just an invitation to come and receive what you need. We ask, as, as the sermon highlighted, how we can best give away what we've received. And I think Peggy can attest to it that sometimes it's, uh, it's hard to outgive God. <laughs> we end up with more stuff. Peggy, after a food pantry day, is going around trying to get rid of it, <laughs> right? Because we've been blessed with so much. Um, but Battle Creek is a community that has real needs. Um, you, you can drive around. You can talk to folks. You realize that there is a need um, for this type of ministry. And Peggy and others have continued to develop relationships. I'm really excited about uh, some of the conversations I've had with Peggy over the past year um, where she was talking with other organizations, other food pantries. Um, this year she's been able to, to lead the pantry in giving out some produce because of a relationship with other pantries um, and other organizations in the community. Uh, I don't know if you know this. We've done, I haven't done a great job of celebrating this as they've happened, but we have a relationship with Aldi now. Instead of throwing food away, Peggy's over there. Um, sometimes, well, you, she takes other folks too, but um, Peggy's, as our director, is over there at Aldi getting food that she brings back here that would otherwise have just gone to waste. Um, Menards has been a great per partnership with the food pantry this year in a couple different ways. They have did a, a, was it a food drive? Um, where people brought stuff into the store and they called Peggy and said, hey, we know you do good work in our community. We want to donate this stuff to, to be dispersed through your pantry. Um, and most recently, uh, Panera has been trying to connect with, with Peggy about um, bread that they would have to dispose of otherwise that, that could come. And so it's not just uh, about the, the pantry, although it is about the pantry, but developing relationships in the community to help those with resources connect with those who have needs. And so um, his hand is a blessing. It is, like I said, truly the group in this church that remembers more than any other that ministry means service, that meeting somebody's physical needs um, is just as much of a blessing and a spiritual need as anything else we could be doing. And so... Um, just want to say thanks to Peggy and the group. Uh, I didn't tell him I was going to put him on the spot, but if you've worked with his hand, just stand up for a moment and let us acknowledge your service this year. Um, anybody that's volunteered, worked with his hand, don't be shy. Otherwise, start calling names. Um, and with that said, we're always 
in looking for the next volunteer. So if you are interested in joining that crew in this wonderful work in our community, uh, see Peggy or myself and we'll get you plugged in. Um, another ministry of the church that sometimes kind of, it's, it's got a big footprint, it's got a big presence, but sometimes it can kind of go unnoticed just because it kind of just, operates on its own. It does its, it does its thing. It doesn't just operate on it. Cindy and her staff over at First Kids work very hard at what they do, and sometimes it just kind of, from the outsider's perspective, it might just seem seamless. But this year's total enrollment was 176 children from ages birth through junior high school. 176 children. The, the center operates seven classrooms with 32 teachers and staff. They're basically a small city over there. The daycare, preschool, and school-age programs care for children Monday through Friday from 6.30 in the morning to 6 p.m., 52 weeks of the year. Um, Cindy tells us that this is a total of 260 days a year and over 2,970 hours of care provided. Um, I'm pulling that information from Cindy's report. Again, that's in the booklet. If you want to go through and read uh, her report, I would encourage you to do so. Um, the average number of children receiving weekly Bible lessons this past year was 135 children per week receiving Bible lessons. Um, Pastor Tabitha, who is a school-age director over there, has been reading missionary books and Christ-centered storybooks to the school-age students, resulting in eight children asking Jesus into their hearts. Eight children. Yes. Yes. Day in, day out, they are not only keeping kids comfortable and safe and fed and changed and all that stuff, but they are taking that mission beyond providing child care, and they're providing spiritual growth and spiritual care. Um, It wasn't an easy year, though. In October, the center experienced the death of an infant student whose mother is also on staff there. And then here just recently in March, um, lead teacher in the four-year-old classroom, uh, Miss Cindy Bogus, um, passed unexpectedly as well. And both deaths weighed heavily on the staff and the students in the family of the daycare. And the reason they did, the reason that these losses were felt so profoundly is because it's not just a place to work. It's not just a job that people go and punch a clock, but it hit hard because it's a big family over there in which lives are shared, burdens are carried with each other. And as a church, the reason I want to highlight this this morning is because it is our biggest mission field. Um, There are churches that sit in meetings every month going, well, how, how in the world do we reach people? How do we, who do we go to? How do we reach people? And they're literally every day of the week, there's people bringing their children to us and paying us to do it nonetheless. Right? Like just delivering them to our doorstop. It is our largest mission field. And I'm so excited to, to share with you those statistics of the, the 135 kids hearing Bible stories, eight children asking Jesus into their heart. It's our biggest mission field. And the, the st- Cindy and the staff over there take it very seriously. They're doing everything possible to get Jesus into the hearts and homes of the students. They're not just concerned about what a student does when they're here, but they're concerned about what's going on in the student's home. They care about the families, the moms, the dads, the grandparents. They don't just care for the students, but they want to introduce them and their families to the love and grace of Jesus. And so we at First Church, the challenge in this year and the years after is to join them in that mission, uh, to support them, to pray for them, and ultimately partner with them. Um, sometimes we joke that the parking lot is a huge divide, and we're, we're going to work hard to break that down. Um, but First Kids Learning Center is doing the work of the kingdom. They are receiving the blessings from their faithfulness, and they are giving them out as much as they can. They are being blessed every day, and they are pouring out those blessings into other people's lives, and the kingdom impact will be felt for generations. Um, so I'm, we have a few staff from First Kids here, and obviously uh, Miss Cindy's here, but can we just thank them for their commitment uh, to the kids and families of the First Kids Center?
At this point, I'm going to ask uh, Brenda, are you ready, to come share uh, what's going on in the NYI world. I am always ready to talk about my kids. Um, so, hi, I'm Brenda Jones. Um, today, I stand before you wrapping up my sixth year involved in teen ministry here at the church. I've been involved in varying capacities over the year. Uh, I've had the honor, pleasure, and absolute joy of serving as NYI president for about the past, I did not do this math, three or four years, I think. Um, uh, and pretty much everything's in my report. I really just have a few things that I would like to highlight. One being something that, um, as the human I am, I forgot to put into my annual report of a new ministry we started this last year um, that we are referring to as the Movie Night Ministry, where once a month we show a movie here at the church. Um, some of them are Christian films. If you're familiar with the Kendrick Brothers, uh, yesterday we watched the movie Flywheel. If you've seen the movie Facing the Giants, we've watched that one. Next month, so in about four weeks out from now, a month from yesterday, uh, we will be here at the church watching Zootopia together. Um, Zootopia is not a Christian movie, but the point of these is we watch these movies together and then we hang out afterwards and discuss what we see in that film, how it connects to our lives as Christians, and uh, just what themes we see and uh, connect with each other. And it's been a great blessing so far in so many lives. Um, it's just one of the many ways that this ministry continues to grow and expand. Uh, we have teens in our church who have been connected to multiple ministries within this church outside of the teen ministry itself. Uh, teens have assisted in the food bank. Uh, we have Jonas sits in the drums up here for worship. Sarah's in the back on the tech team. Um, even other students who aren't currently active in another ministry, many of them have in the past off and on as their own schedules allow um, we have three graduating seniors this year. Oh my gosh. Um, I, any of you who are like me who are still kind of young enough to remember the stress of graduating high school, please keep our teens in your prayers. Um, and just thank you so much for your love and support of the youth of this church. Um, as I say in my report, they're not just the church of tomorrow. They are a reflection of who we are now. Please be proud of them. I know I am. Um, to wrap us up, I have a quote uh, that was given to me from one of the teens, which I hope Sarah knows you're not getting this back. I'm keeping it forever. Um, so I would just like to share this from the mouths of one of our graduating seniors this year of uh, something she has to say. I have been blessed to have a place to feel safe, loved, and free to express myself. The youth group through the years under Brenda's leadership has helped several of us become equipped and able to show God's love to others and navigate our lives through God's word. Um, and for me, it doesn't get much better than that. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Brenda. Um, in your report booklet, if you grabbed one, if you didn't, feel free to grab one on your way out um, and read through those. But in there, you'll find a report submitted by uh, Tabitha Fisher, Pastor Tabitha, um, who uh, this morning just uh, preached over at Hope Church. I saw Tabitha. Where'd she go? I saw her a minute ago. I, yeah. I, for some reason, I had you pegged over there in my mind. I don't know. Um, She's moving around on me. She's messing with me. Um, but she was preaching over at, at Hope Church. Um, and so I get to share a, a few highlights uh, from her report. Um, I, like I said, take the time to read that. Um, but there's kind of two main elements to her report, at least the way that I understood it. Um, the biggest thing I want you to know about uh, Pastor Tabitha is that in July at our upcoming district assembly, she will be um, ordained as an elder in the Church of the Nazarene. Yes. This is a... Um, a long what, Do you remember when you got your first local license or when you felt the call to ministry? Okay. Yeah. It is not something you wake up one day and decide, I'm going to be ordained, and then they hand you a certificate. Um, ordination is an affirmation of calling. Um, there's an education requirement. There's an experience requirement every year for the past X number of years. Um, Tabitha has had to go sit before a board of pastors and lay leaders on the district in which she's serving on and speak to her calling and her understanding of scriptures and her understanding of ecclesiology, which means the way that the church functions, and her understanding of Nazarene polity, which means how our local church functions and, and our general church. And like every year you go and you have to um, uh, 
submit yourself before this again to affirm the calling. Like I said, you do not get to ordain yourself. Um, 25 years ago, Tabitha said she heard a call from God and she said yes. And then ordination is the process in which the church says yes to that calling too. It's a time of equipping and preparing while also ministering. Um, So ordination in in July, in some sense, will be a finishing line, um, kind of a graduation of sorts. But in reality, it is just a starting point. Um, She will stand up in front of a congregation of people. A general superintendent of the Church of Nazarene will uh, charge her with the work of an ordained elder in the Church of Nazarene. And what that means is not that you have completed the task and you are now free to go do whatever you want, roam around the cabin however you like, that type of thing, but rather that you have fully surrendered your life to the service and ministry of the church. This is a huge deal, and I will encourage you, if you can mark it on your calendar, July 10th, come out to Indian Lake and celebrate that uh, huge moment uh, in Tabitha and John's life. Um, Ordination is a beginning, not a finish. It requires, uh, to be ordained in the Church of Nazarene, requires an official role. Like, you can't just be a rogue, ordained elder just out there doing your own thing. Although, um, I think if you did that, they'd just call you an evangelist. Um, Just kidding, that's um, (laughs) a pastor joke. Um, No, but to to be ordained, you have to be uh, connected to a church, and you have to be uh, given... specific role that you're accountable to, right? Again, you're not, ordination doesn't put you at the top of the org chart, but it actually puts you into the great place, place of greatest service. And if you talk to Pastor Tabitha, she will affirm to you that she understands her calling as a call to senior pastoral ministry. Um, and so we, as a church, have been praying that she would find the will of God for her and her family in, in days to come. Um, and I, I have a hunch that um, that call will be uh, revealed to her sooner than later. I really do. Um, but she feels called, that God is calling her to, to pastor over a congregation. But in the meantime, she's here. She's one of us. And we're not in a hurry to get rid of her. <laughs> so rather than think about where she might be going. We're going to put her to work. Um, Many of you know this. She is a uh, school-age director over at the daycare. Um, That's her regular 40-hour-a-week job over there. But like I said, to be ordained, you have to have an official pastoral role. And so um, this year, I talked with with Pastor Tabitha, with Cindy, who's her boss at the daycare, and we tried to create Um, a pastoral role that functions within the realm of her her job over there. So um, from this day forth, you can know, it actually happened in a board meeting like two or three months ago, but um, you can know that Pastor Tabitha's official role is pastor two families. Um, And if you're kind of like, that's kind of a weird title or something. Um, It functions within her current role at the day at First Kids, but brings a missional element. So she has not only thinking about how do I accomplish the tasks that I have to do, but how do I bring the mission and the life of the church into these things? Um, When I was writing up a description of what this role would look like, I referred to uh, school chaplains. So you can almost think of Tabitha's role as a chaplain to the staff, the students, and the family at the daycare. And just in the same way that I share uh, the direction of my teaching with Hannah so she can prepare worship. I'm going to start sharing that information with Tabitha so she can bring the life of the church into the life of the daycare and then vice versa, that she can speak into the teaching and preaching here and say, this is what our families really need. This is what our staff need to hear. This is what the kids need to know about. And so it's a two-way conversation. It's kind of like having a, a, a spy in the center over there um, that is, is transmitting information from over here but also providing feedback. Um, helping to bridge the gap between first church and first kids. Um, so that's a big deal. It's been a big year for Tabitha and John, right? <laughs> so can we just thank Tabitha for her, her service and celebrate her, her ordination that's upcoming.
Uh, on the very last page of the, like, the very, very back, there's just a one-sentence little note there that says, uh, financial reports will be available when, when available, um, or something like that. We'll be provided when available. Uh, the fiscal year hasn't wrapped up yet. Um, once Martha has a chance to wrap up all our stuff, we will provide that as an addendum to this meeting or whatever and make that available. We want you to know that um, you, at any point in time, can find out what's going on with the finance of your church. This isn't a behind-closed-curtain thing. We want you to know um, how we are stewarding the, the gifts that you uh, care for the church. Um, but in, in lieu of a report, I just want to highlight a few things. Uh, because of your generosity and support as a church, we are able to fund the different ministries that have going on. Um, and again, not just because like you're supposed to, right? Oh, I'm a Christian, I have to give. It's just another bill. I pay the cell bill, I, you know, the cable bill, the internet, uh, the grocery bill, the gas bill, uh, the gas bill, the gas bill. Um, and then, and then my, to the church, like don't, Think of the church as a bill, right? We don't want you to, to give because you have to or because people are going to shame you if you don't, but rather um, you're giving because you are excited to support the work and ministries of the church. And I hope you hear these reports today and, and have that sense, the confirmation that we are doing our best to be faithful, to take that which God blesses us with and just give it out, um, to bless those around us, to be a blessing to our community. Um, not just uh, paying a bill to the church, but supporting the, the ministries. Also, um, know that part of the tithes and the offerings that come in the church goes to support, support missions around the world. Um, there are Nazarene missionaries in uh, a lot of countries doing a lot of uh, different types of work, creative missionary work, and your giving goes to support that. The church um, gives thousands of dollars each every year to support missionary work. Uh, education, um, uh, our district, we support our district work and the ministry through the district. Um, we support pensions and benefits, which is a way to support Nazarene pastors and ministers that are both active and retired. Um, so a portion of your giving goes to support all that. So not only are we doing things locally, not only are we funding you know, lights and all that stuff and the different ministries, but your giving goes to make a difference um, through the Nazarene church around the world. Um, so like I said, uh, just stay tuned. We'll get you a report when the fiscal year wraps up and we're able to have that to you. Um, and then kind of uh, the last ministry report before we get to, to my report, uh, I put myself last. So if we run long, everybody's frustrated with me for talking too long and not anybody else. Um, but just uh, SDMI, NDI, so many of you may know uh, Sunday School Discipleship Ministries became Nazarene Discipleship International. So you got NDI. Um, the first thing that we just highlight is David Dake has been our, um, our president of that ministry for the last two years, and his health has been a challenge lately. Um, he went in the hospital for a surgery in February and uh, really hasn't been home since. I mean, it's been back and forth, but it's been a challenge. So just keep David uh, in your prayers. He did uh, get a report submitted, so feel free to do that. But I would encourage you to reach out and thank David for um, his service in this area and let him know that you are praying for him. Um, it's been a hard stretch for he and Nancy the last few months. Um, 2021 was a year for Sunday school and discipleship ministries that were restarting things that had paused in 2020. So a lot had happened. There was some transition. There was a lot going on. And so the challenge was to how do we restart things in the way they need to be. Um, I would encourage you to read the report and kind of see what he focused on there. But the focus for the future will be a deliberate effort in uh, making deeply formed disciples like those of us who are in this room already, those of us who are part of the church together, like how do we form Jesus into us deeply? How do we shape our church to look more like Jesus? So that'll be one element. And the other element will be how do we engage new people in discipleship ministries? Um, and so all the work that has been done in the last year has been preparing us to get to this point where we can really lean heavily into um, the future. So that's just a quick update on discipleship. Uh, like I said, if you want to know more, Give David a call. Um, he's been kind of isolated from the church for a while and would love, love to talk to anybody and everybody. Um, and that brings me to my report. Uh, it's my privilege to share my second report as pastor of Battle Creek First Church in Nazarene. As I reviewed the significant events of the past year, um, it becomes clear why I feel and look a bit tired. <laughs> 
both physically and emotionally. It's been a year filled with challenges that have required a great deal of effort and thought um, and prayer. Unresolved issues that might have been easy to kind of ignore while we scaled back church activities during COVID, again, pushed their way into the life of the church. And the reality is that a church cannot move forward to what God is calling us to be and do without properly dealing with any lingering issues that might be hanging out there. And so, in this past year, we've worked to bring clarity to areas where there was confusion. Uh, we worked to bring unity where there was conflict. It's not been perfect, uh, and there's work yet to do. But the mission of the church is the instrument that we have used to guide us through some of these challenges. As I've repeatedly mentioned in our recent worship gatherings, we are called to be disciples who worship together, disciples who connect in Christian fellowship, and serve in Christian love. But we are also called to invite, equip, and empower others to worship, connect, and to serve. So whenever we needed to make a decision or choose a direction, we haven't asked the question about what makes us most comfortable. We haven't been asking the question about whose preference are we going to go with, but rather we're trying to ask what makes us better disciples and what helps us to be better at making disciples. And that might mean things that used to be high priorities aren't quite as high on the priority list as they used to be. Hard issues or conversations that we would have probably liked to avoid or not have, we're asking those and meeting them head on because the mission of the church is greater than our comfort. As senior pastor of First Church, I basically have one goal for us, to be faithful to that which God is calling us to be and to do. When I first started here, uh, I said that not only do I feel called to minister to First Church, but I was called to minister with First Church. And so without a doubt, First Church is called to be a community of believers that minister to each other and to our community. I put my full effort and commitment as a pastor into the calling, um, into that calling, preparing and equipping the church to share Jesus with the people of Battle Creek. Um, as I sat and wrote this report, I was aware that there are people who are possibly disappointed or frustrated with me, and I would include myself in that group because there's more I wanted to do in this past year, more I felt like I should have done or could have done, more that I knew people needed me to do. That does not go unnoticed. But God continues to teach me about trusting him, uh, the importance of Sabbath as a healthy part of faith, and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I return again to the guiding principles that I'm sure, I'm confident God has given us as a church to shape our church in months ahead. Uh, By remembering the mission that motivated the church in the past, The ministries of the church in the present can be shaped so the church is faithful into the future. Do you believe that God is calling First Church to minister to Battle Creek and beyond? Do you believe that God is calling First Church to minister to Battle Creek and beyond? I do. Hardly a week goes by where I don't find myself saying, God is up to something here. The reality is that we are a relatively small church, and we have to be realistic about our resources and our abilities. So we need to be deliberate in our prioritization and our planning. And that's where, as Paul mentioned in his report, I introduced the one, two, three, four, five. Those are three guiding principles that were set to guide us for five years. And that is a vision for the church that is comprised, again, of these three guiding principles, strengthening the core ministries, establishing a presence in Battle Creek and surrounding communities, and fine-tuning the facilities to match our ministry's needs. The first one, strengthening the core, um, means strengthening the core ministries that we are currently doing and not get distracted by what else we could possibly be doing. There are a lot of possibilities, a lot of great ideas, but in reality, we can't create new things that compete with the things that we have already said are important. We anticipate a great deal of transition in some of our ministries in the next few years, so the focus of strengthening these core ministries is critical. But these are kind of what I flagged as core ministries. Uh, First Kids Learning Center, His Hand, Teens, Children, Worship, uh, Discipleship, uh, and then uh, Welcome Team and Care, which don't really exist in the format that I think they should yet, but that's a core element of church life. 
So what does strengthening those ministries look like? Developing the next generations of leaders and volunteers and identifying plans for transition and growth. Recruiting and training volunteers to support that ministry. Starting new uh, connect groups and classes that meet the needs of our people. Uh, Breaking down silos and sharing the mission of the church between the ministries. Helping us all get on the same page and work from the same playbook. Uh, The second Guiding principle is establish a presence in Battle Creek and surrounding communities. This means we place an emphasis on presence, not programs. We participate in the life of our community. We pray in and for our community. We develop partnerships with local organizations that we can support or whose values and missions we share. We support community organizations who need help. We welcome our neighbors and help meet their needs. We celebrate our community. And the third guiding principle was fine-tune the facility to match our ministry's needs. What does that mean? God has blessed us with a tremendous amount of resources here at First Church. A primary task for us is to organize and equip these spaces, these resources, to meet specific ministry needs. Identify the purpose for the space and then do everything we can to make sure that space meets that purpose. Uh, Some of that might look like freshening aging structures, Um, before we tackle new areas and new ideas, we might need to invest in caring for what we already have. Our facilities are about uh, 30 years old-ish, and updates are needed. As I'm reading this report, I keep staring at the piece of the ceiling in the corner that you can't see that's like flaking down. But anyways, there's things that need attention. Um, 30-year-old church building needs care. Uh, And this means we might need to fundraise for projects every once in a while or establish a pattern of uh, work days or invite people to help or um, continually support that goal. Uh, This is not something one or two people can do. We can't just say, oh, this is, uh, the trustees can do this or something. Um, This is a a church commitment. Um, But lately I've been in several conversations that all came to the same basic conclusion. What we do in this next year or two will shape who we are as Battle Creek First Church for the next decade or two. It's an exciting time to be part of First Church. There's a great work ahead of us, and it is a work. But God has blessed us with abundant blessings. My prayer is that we will be stewards of this ministry that God has entrusted to us. Let us celebrate this faithfulness Let us celebrate when we say yes. Let us lament our losses as we let go of things and people that we've loved and lost. But ultimately, let us keep our eyes on Jesus as he calls us to take the next step of faith.